I do invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. Oh, we're almost through Hosea. I'm going to miss Hosea and Gomer. They become dear friends to me over Advent here. So I reassure you, you can keep reading this book. Go through it and take in the great truths within it. Hosea 11. You can find us on page 896. Four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, we're fairly bleak. But chapter 11, we see God's love. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of God's redeeming compassion. Hosea chapter 11, starting at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful that You are not like a man. You are holy. You are perfect. Your ways are perfect and true. Father, we pray that You would give us wisdom and understanding, that You would guide us into Your truth. 
that you take us by the hand and draw us ever closer to you. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. Amen. Here we see God. It's one of the most tender portrayals of God you find in the Scriptures. It's one of the most beautiful, intimate, tender portrayals you find of God. And here it is in Hosea. In the midst of one of the most powerful books of prophecy, exposing God's people, their unfaithfulness, their wickedness, their brokenness, and God shows Himself as the most tender, caring parent you could ever dream of. What an amazing statement of God's character and His grace. So we're going to be looking at this passage. And the first thing I point out here in these first verses is God makes clear that He is a loving Father. A caring father, a tender father. We already saw earlier in Hosea. In Hosea chapter 2, God spoke of his judgment against sin and his judgment against idolatry and how he is going to bring a destruction to Israel, to the northern kingdoms. Yet he will speak tenderly to his elect, to his remnant, to those who are his. And it says he will speak tenderly to their hearts and take them and draw them into his embrace is the symbolism given here. That's, the, uh, that's this beautiful image where he has Hosea go and buy the people back out of their slavery, redeem them from their sin. And Hosea does this with Gomer and brings her into his home and says, you are going to stay here and love me only and cling to me and I will cling to you. What a beautiful image of a faithful husband loving and embracing and holding his wife that he loves. We also have in Hosea the image of a father. God portrays himself as this father who speaks out and lifts out. And we see where the prodigal son and the father who comes running to embrace and restore. We can see that foundation being laid in Hosea. Well, here again in Hosea 11, we have again, as I said, some of the most tender descriptions of God you will find in all the Bible. And if you look at verse 1, we see this through verses 1 through verse 3. He makes clear, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember how God made a promise to Abraham. He said to Abraham, Father Abraham, that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the shore. Yet they will be in captivity first. But God will free them and bring them out. And here we see this tenderness. God hears their cries. He hears the cries of His people. He sends Moses to liberate and show His grace and His goodness and His power over evil, His power over darkness, and His power over death. But you see the, this grieving 
aspect of God's heart in verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. Cammie just saw this visibly portrayed in the mall not too long ago. There you are in the mall, the local mall here, and you have this area where the kids can play. To me, the most dangerous little zone there is. It's the ground zero right there. You put the kids in there, and they're somewhat contained. And Cammie saw this was a little boy or a little girl? Little boy. Shot out. Running as fast as those little legs can take him. I mean, just... And behind him was the grandma. Going as fast as her legs could take her. Crying out. But it seemed like the more effort, the more crying, the faster and further the child went. With her own eyes, she saw verse 2 acted out. This is what God is portraying here. I don't know about you. Have you ever called to a child? And it seemed like the more you said, come here, the further and faster they went. That's what we have the picture of here. God's tender calling, His loving calling out, and yet all He gets is a fleeing child running from Him. And He says what this means. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And here again you get this intimacy of God the Father in verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but then they did not know that I healed them. Now you have God. You have literally the image of God with his two big fingers, and you have the toddler learning to walk with one hand wrapped around each finger, and you have, you have the image of God like this, and Israel learning to walk step by step. And that child knows that as long as it's holding on to those fingers, It isn't going to fall, yet you have this toddler as it gets a little older, it lets go of those fingers and runs away. And you have this torn heart of a father desiring, crying out for this child who has abandoned him and run from his love and run from his truth and run from His grace. In verse 4, again, you see the nature of God the Father. I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. Remember in Hosea 4, we looked at this morning, it said they cast off the bonds. They cast off the cords. They cast off these bands. Here God makes clear that His commandments... His law, His instruction is love. It is love. Because when God shows us in His Word how we are to live, it's the most loving thing He could do. This is why in our kitchens, when we have a hot pot of boiling water, we turn the handles in so they're not sticking out when we have little ones in the kitchen. And we instruct the littlest ones and we show them and we say, don't touch here. You'll get burned. Don't touch. That's love. 
And that's what we see God showing his law and his commands. These are cords of kindness. These are bands of love to guide us and lead us into his truth. And then you have how God provides for them at the end of verse 4. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I never saw this or fully understood this until we are doing our internship in Bellflower, California, my year-long internship. And we were there, and one of the sister churches to our church that used our facility was a CRC church of Filipino congregation. And the service was, you know, in, in local dialect of, of where they were from, and they went through the service and that. But they always had a meal afterward. They always had a meal. And Cam and I were young parents with, they weren't even two, were they? No, they weren't even two. And remember, we were asking, what do we do if they don't eat? And these, this one mother says, oh, you just follow. And whenever they stop, you put a spoonful in their mouth. And then they run on, you just follow. And you... That's how you feed them. And that's what we'd see. We'd go to these luncheons and there'd be these, either the mothers or their grandmothers just following these little toddlers around with the bowl and that. And finally, the, the little one would stop long enough and <laughs> they'd get the spoonful. But every time what these mothers or grandmothers or even great-grandmothers, you see them bending and stooping over so they can get down and feed that child. That's the exact image here it's the most tender care it's the most intimate tender care and god is showing his heart for his people it is a heart of compassion remember god revealed who he is he is holy he is just and he is also long-suffering he is patient and he is kind and he is tender so you see the heart here And this is a heart of a grieving parent, a grieving father. And that's one of the most powerful things is I know in my short time here at Anchor of Hope, nearly every family is touched by a child or a grandchild or a great-grandchild who at this point has wandered away from the Lord, who, who have either wandered away or are running full tilt. And how we long and how we pray and how we lift them up that God will take hold of them and turn them and so they see His beauty and see His love and see His grace and see who Jesus Christ is. And we pray that God will just take them up and pull them in close so that they will know who their Heavenly Father is. This is our prayer. This is our desire. This is the desire of our heart. And this is what we see portrayed here. So that's the first point there is God is a loving father to Israel. He comes. He frees them. This is the main theme throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 105, you see this same statement. Psalm 105, starting at verse 39. God talks about liberating Israelites from Egypt. And he says, 
He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give them light by night. Remember when God led them as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought out his He brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Yet they rebelled. They turned to other gods. They turned to everything else but God Himself to meet their pleasures and desires and wants. And it led to ruin and destruction. And you have the heart of God the Father expressing His grief and His longing for His child. As we continue through this passage... Point two and point three reference two different lions. Two different lions. I love Hosea because there are several times where God refers to himself as a lion. As a lion. And the main first theme in Hosea is that God is a destroying lion. That when he roars, you shake and tear because he's going to come and bring his judgment. And he's going to devour. You see that in Hosea 13. Hosea 13, we see a similar, a parallel passage to what we're seeing in here in 11. Hosea 13, starting at verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Hosea makes clear of God's judgment and God's wrath. It makes clear of the consequences of sin, And where we all stand in condemnation before God. We see this and we see this in this very passage. In the very passage it talks about the sword that will devour. This would be verses 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. In verse 6. Here we see God the roaring lion bringing his just judgment and destruction to the people. The sword shall rage against their cities. And then verse 7, 
My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. We see where he references Egypt and he references Assyria. Again, you would find us in 2 Kings 17, where literally the king of Israel at the time, it says this in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria, Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So here you have Hosea paying him tribute in hopes that he could keep peace by paying off the king of Assyria. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to so king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria. So first, you have Hosea thinking that he can appease the king of Assyria by paying tribute, but then when he realizes that that isn't working, then he doesn't go to God per se, he goes to Egypt with their horses and their chariots and their power, and he's going to seek military might and the strength of the arm and the sharpness of the sword of the army of Egypt to bring their salvation and victory. He offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years, he besieged it. In the ninth year, Hosea, the king of Assyria, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halal and on the harbor, the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And here you have in 2 Kings 17 verse 7, a little explanation of why that happened. And this is the entire book of Hosea is is prophesying verse 7 on. Verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. You hear the same exact language. And from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. That's what Jeroboam did. Remember I read this morning the beginning of it. Two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven. 
and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Well, Judah must have been a righteous nation. They must have been faithful. They must have done what's right. Verse 19. Judah also did not keep the command of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. What Hosea is getting us to the point of understanding is what's so powerful is you read the book of Hosea and then you read 2 Kings 17, that passage I just read, and you see where everything that Hosea prophesied was exactly how God brings it about, how he brought it about. And he brings it about for this reason. God has mercy on whom he has mercy and wrath on whom he has wrath. That we are saved by grace alone. We're all gomers. But thanks be to God, God shows a grace and mercy in Hosea that is not like ours. That's the key part that we're building up to in this passage. We see throughout Hosea that God is portrayed as the destroying lion coming to bring his judgment. But that is not the only image of a lion we have in Hosea. Thanks be to God. And that's my third point. God's compassion grows warm and tender. I I love this imagery. And here, rather than a destroying lion, we have a restoring lion. This is grace. Was Judah any more righteous than Israel? No. Text makes that very clear. So why was Judah saved? Because God made a promise. And he said, I will save a people for my own name. Was it based on their works? No. Was it based on their obedience? No. It was based on God's sovereign grace and grace alone. You see, the gospel is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The work that God's doing from before creation, from eternity past, was that His Son would come and die on a cross so that we would begin to see what it means that God is holy and God is just. That God is loving and God is compassionate. And God so loved the world that He would give His only begotten Son to be born in a manger, to be mocked 
and persecuted throughout his life, to be crucified as a criminal, to die, but to be raised on the third day. And there's the compassion. There's the compassion. And that's what we see in our passage here. The compassion. And that's where we see the shift in verse 8. Verse 8. Now, we don't want to be confused here. God brings his judgment against Israel, as we saw in 2 Kings. But what he's saying here when he says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. He's talking about after that initial captivity and destruction. What he's saying is, even though I bring my judgment and that there is a remnant I have people of every tribe, nation, language, even of Israel. I have people, God's saying, that are mine. And I will preserve them. And they are mine. And they will not experience my judgment. And we see that beginning with verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Here God, rem- it's, it's this picturing, this, this heavenly father who's remembering those times of teaching Israel to walk and speaking tenderly and feeding them and following them around. And guiding them and leading them and showing them love and that. And it's, re, it's as if it's rekindled. And this imagery of my compassion grows warm and tender, this is building a fire. Building a fire. Remember you start with the smallest things. You have your, your paper, your straw, and then you have a little twigs. And you, you get up to sticks about the size of your... Your pinky, and then you get bigger, and then eventually you have your larger logs up there. And it's, it's a spark, so it has God's compassion being where you have that spark from the flint, or you have that match, and you place it in there, and, and you're, you're gently blowing on that flame. Not, not too much that you blow it out, but just enough so it gets oxygen, it can be feed, and it starts, starts going until you finally hear we're always longing for in our house until you hear the crackle of the wood catch. That's when you know you're, you're almost there. Those first crackles. And here we have God's compassion and it shows it where it begins and, and the flame has begun and it's spreading in that and you're hearing the crackles until toward the end of this passage you have a roaring bonfire of God's love of God's compassion, of God's grace. And rather than being a fire to consume, now it's a fire that draws those who are in darkness to light. It brings those who are cold into warmth, and it's to draw His children back to Him. It becomes a beacon of light. That's that kindling of that compassion. And how it's portrayed is the roar of, of a lion but not a destroying lion this time this is a restoring lion it's this beautiful image 
verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. These are all those who have been taken into captivity and scattered, but he's drawing his people, his remnant. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Christmas is about the baby in the manger. It's about God taking on our flesh to come to take our sins, yes. Oh, and Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now that's perplexing, isn't it? No, that's very good. That's very good. That's very good. Yeah, the translation I'm going with is from the ESV. And from the ESV, they do it, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. The NIV wants to be consistent with 2 Kings 17. So as they're going back through with the Hebrew text, they're trying to parallel it with, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. So how can you have two absolutely conflicting statements on that? Isn't that a good question? Okay, that is a good question. We're getting there. We're getting there. So there is a Judah. There is a lion portrayed in Scripture. So I take you to Revelation 5, verses 5 through 10. And I think this will help clear up Brother Gustafson, keeping me accountable of God's Word, which is good. We need Bereans. It's very good. So Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And I went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
as 2 Kings 17 made clear, not only did Israel, but Judah, the people of God, were just as wicked and went the way of idolatry and were unruly and went from God. Yet, because the Hebrew text is unclear with the dots and it could go either way, the ESV chose to understand this as a prophecy about the Judah. Who is the representative of Judah? Who is faithful where Judah was not faithful? Jesus Christ. They're taking this as a messianic prophecy. Pointing to Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the faithful Judah who walks faithfully with the Lord. You see the difference? The one... They're referring to the people, but the other one is referring to Jesus Christ as the Judah. And the reason why they do that is this. If you go back to verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. How is that fulfilled in the New Testament? Remember Herod wants to destroy the child? And the angel comes and warns them and they take baby Jesus to Egypt. And what was the prophecy mentioned? It was from Isaiah. Why did Jesus have to go to Egypt? Because out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus Christ comes and fulfills everything. He literally walks the entire journey that the people of Judah walked, yet he does it Perfectly. Completely. So Jesus becomes the embodiment of what Judah in the Old Testament could not do. He fulfills it perfectly. And brings that truth to us. That would be the theological difference in those two statements. Is, do, do you have the ESV with you right now, right? Are you yours? Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. Does anyone else have the ESV or anyone? They all have the... Okay. But that would be the... That's where they're making that difference in the translation of that passage. But ultimately, that's the point. Jesus fulfills what we cannot. He does what is impossible for us. He leads us in salvation and in truth. So that's why when we hear Jesus call, we are to come. That even though he calls us to lead us, we understand that when Jesus calls, he's calling us into his love and truth so we can have salvation and no longer condemnation and judgment. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. 
Father, we pray that you will guide us. Help us understand how our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills all righteousness. How he does what no one else could do. And in his obedience, we find life and we find salvation. We thank you, O Lord, for your grace and your goodness and your kindness to us. In Christ's wonderful name, amen.